Okay, so for those listening back later on the recording, we're uh, looking at the book of Amos, chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, and chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. There was once a preacher who uh, liked to preach about death and judgment a lot. And uh, he stood up one day and said, each member of this church is going to die and face judgment. And there was a man in the front row who had a massive smile on his face like this. He was really happy, you know. So the preacher repeated the point quite loudly. He said, each member of this church is going to die and you will face judgment. And the man just smiled and kept smiling, you know. And so he banged the pulpit and said, you you know, you're all going to die. You're going to face judgment. This is, this is a real reality here. And he just kept smiling away, you know, very happy. So after the service, he went to uh, straight to the man afterwards and he said, I, I don't get it. You know, I was saying that you're going to be judged and, um, you know, you're going to die. You, but you just got happier. And the man just smiled at him. He said, yeah, it's simple, really. I'm not a member of this church. <laughs> so Ian and Sue, welcome. There we go. Maybe true for you today. We're doing this um, this series on the book of Amos. And maybe in some ways it might be a slightly odd book to choose. It's a fairly small, minor prophet within the Old Testament. It's not one of the major prophets. And there's quite a lot of judgment in this book. <laughs> Why did we choose it? Do I think this church is in need of a good dose of judgment, perhaps? No, not necessarily. <laughs> Um, If you want to join the preaching and teaching team to influence these decisions, come and speak to me afterwards. Well, certainly for for Jenny and myself and for others, we've been here a number of years and we haven't ever looked at this book. And it's always good to look at new parts of scripture. But it's also part of scripture. And the amazing thing about the Bible is that God is able to reveal himself through all parts of scripture. Even the parts that seem the oddest or or most difficult to understand. And and as we mature and grow as Christians in our Christian lives, it is important to to understand that. And we want to to challenge this church. We want to challenge ourselves to to do this. We could just do the parables every week, couldn't we? The kind of standard um, Sunday school passages. But we want to wrestle with the uncomfortable bits. And... All of you, some of you have grown up in the Salvation Army, others of you haven't, and you've found your way to the Salvation Army. And the Salvation Army believes, this is our first doctrine, that we believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament were given by the inspiration of God and that they only constitute the divine rule of Christian faith and practice. We believe within the Salvation Army that the scriptures have a special and central place and every part of scripture, even the bits that we find difficult. Finally, I and the preaching team do believe that this book of Amos has something to say to us today. It was written thousands of years ago, but I hope that we can approach over the next few weeks this book with hope that God will speak. What does God have to say to us as a fellowship and as individuals? So what's going on? in this book of Amos. The clue is in verse one. It says that Amos is a shepherd in Tekoa. He was uh, during the days of King Uzziah and of Jeroboam in Israel. This is, for a bit of context, about 150 years after the split between the two kingdoms of uh, Israel and Judah. 
after the exile, God's people came up into the land that they were given. And for a number of years, they lived together. But for various reasons, they ended up splitting apart. And you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. This is a time of relative peace, actually, within Scripture. There are no major wars happening. Um, and Judah, on the whole, is faithful to God. But Israel is often unfaithful. And this is true of this king, Jeroboam, who Amos goes to speak to. He actually wins many wars. He increases the territory and plunders these lands. But the wealth that he gets ends up distorting God's people and escorting the message that God wants to say. There's big inequality between rich and poor. And Amos is from Tekoa, which is in the southern kingdom of Judah. But he travels up north to proclaim God's word to Jeroboam and the northern kingdom. There are nine chapters, and generally speaking, it goes into three sections. The first section is this message that we're looking at today to the other nations and to Israel. The second section is, is kind of poems outlining what the, the unfaithfulness of God's people is. And the final bit is... Uh, chapters 7 to 9, which is around the visions, around the judgment that God has for the people. So my task today is an overview of this first section. We didn't read it all, but uh, after introducing who Amos is, Yongin said earlier, um, he starts to pronounce judgment on the surrounding nations, which is a little bit odd because he says in verse 1, this is the words of Amos, which he saw concerning Israel. We didn't read it, but then he goes in to speak about all these other nations. Um, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Gaza, Damascus. So what's going on there? Well, maybe there's two reasons that he starts in this way. Firstly, to get the attention of the hearers. I don't know about you, but if I'm being told off for something, I don't particularly like it. But if my, the person who's telling me off starts by saying how bad everyone else is, then I might start to listen. <laughs> So that's what uh, maybe is a, a tactic of Amos here. He's kind of starting and saying, well, all these other nations, and he's speaking to Israel, they've done all these dreadful things. And they go, oh, I want to hear how rubbish all these nations are around me. But actually, it, it works as well as that, as a kind of, as a target. He starts to speak about all these other nations, but eventually he hones in on the focus of God's judgment which is Israel yes God judges the other nations but the main focus is Israel this is God's people this is the important bit what is the nature of the judgment let's look back at what Yongan read before in chapter 2 verse 6 these people God's people who are meant to be a light to the world have started to sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. This is a reference maybe to corrupt judges who accept bribes and sell people into slavery who cannot um, pay their debts, which is specifically uh, prohibited in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Secondly, man and his uh, father and son go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. Sexual immorality is rife within this kingdom. They've fallen away from God's standard of purity when it comes to sexual immorality. And there is abuse. 
dreadful abuse. Father and son go into the same girl. This is horrible stuff. This is the reality of what was happening. Thirdly, verse 8. In the house of God, they drink wine bought with fines that they impose. They're so corrupt that they tax people and they fine them so much. And then they use that to buy wine and get drunk in God's holy temple. So this is not a good picture. The people's wealth has made them go mad with greed. This is a a picture of depravity and debauchery. So God will judge his people. Verse 13, I will press you down in your place. Verse 15, those who handle the bow shall not stand. And those who are swift shall not save themselves. There is no getting away from this. God does not make empty promises. He will judge his people. He will not stand idly by. So a nice cheery passage (laughs) to think about this morning. What on earth is, is going on here? What is God saying to us? There's just two points I want to bring out today. And I think we'll, I hope will speak to us. The first is regarding Amos himself. It's a picture of Amos. This is not an actual picture, if you don't know. I didn't have cameras back then. But uh, he's got a nice sheepskin or bearskin thing to show that he was a shepherd. This is uh, a picture of Amos. Amos was an ordinary man. He was a shepherd. He was not a trained professional priest. He was not a trained professional priest. Later on in chapter 7, Amos, it says this, Then Amos answered Amaziah, I am no prophet, I am no prophet's son, but I am a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from the following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. He is from Tekoa. Some of my research, it's a fairly arid place. It's not a center of of cultural um, productivity or learning. It's not uh, uh, the best place in the world. It's kind of out of the way. It's in the southern kingdom, and he's been sent up north. I can relate to that. I'm a southerner. (laughs) Been sent up north. Um, He's sharing his message not only with the king of Israel, who is living in this luxury and and finery, this kind of cultural, uh, remarkable place, but also with the professional priestly class. As we go through, we'll see this. This this man from nowhere comes and he speaks this word to these important people within the kingdom of Israel. He's this farmer facing the sophistication of a, a, a powerful nation. It's like someone who's maybe unemployed or you know, on benefits, perhaps rocking up to the Houses of Parliament and saying, you have got this wrong. You know, and I can only imagine that the people of God, the, the king, these people who have gone off track are saying, who on earth is this guy? How dare you come and speak to us? Who are you? And this is important to us to reflect on, brothers and sisters. You do not need a theology degree or have gone to training college or even to speak eloquently for God to use you powerfully in his kingdom time and time again within scripture this should be so obvious if we are reading scripture together this message that Moses 
He says, I can't really speak well. And he has to, to go along with his, his cousin Aaron. David is not the biggest in his family. Gideon says, my clan is the weakest in my tribe. I'm the least in my family. Jesus is killed on a cross. Paul says that God chooses the weak and the powerless and the foolish things to shame the strong and the wise. What's the reason for this? So God gets the glory, not us. So God gets the glory, not us. Giles Fraser, one of the a commentator who's a Christian, he writes in various things. He says this, here's the thing. The Christian story, like the best sort of terrifying psychoanalysis, strips you down to nothing in order for you to face yourself anew. For it turns out that the losers are not despised or rejected, not ultimately. In fact, losers can discover something about themselves that winners can never appreciate, that they are loved and wanted simply because of who they are and not because of what they achieve. Isn't that good? Hudson Taylor, the famous, um, the famous missionary, once said that all God's giants have been weak people. So... If you're sitting here today thinking, I'm not very impressive, my life doesn't look very much, and you're in good company, <laughs> and God can use you powerfully. Do you think that God could never use you for something big? Let's take heart from this book of Amos where God uses this, this shepherd. Maybe you're not trained. Perhaps English is not your first language. You've come to the UK and maybe your English is not great, I'm aware. Many people who are here have come from different countries. God couldn't use me. I don't even speak English very well. Let me challenge you this morning and say that God can and will and wants to use you wherever you are throughout the week when you're working in your workplace, in your street where you live, amongst this fellowship, God can use you. Actually admitting your own weakness is important for God to use you. We are called to die to ourselves. Okay, that's the first point. Second point is around judgment itself. This book does have a lot of judgment in there. There's no getting around that. And isn't there already too much judgment in Christianity? Don't we, you know, there's kind of a lot of judgment around and people... You know, these people on street corners telling everyone they're going to hell. Don't we want to move away from that? Well, yes and no. <laughs> of course, there is this reality around judgmental Christians. And it is a real thing. And there is so much wrong with this. And we don't need to repeat that. Jesus does say, take the plank out of your own eye before you judge others. But in trying to get away from that sense of, of being judgmental, perhaps we've also gone too far and forgotten that we do have a God who judges righteously. I've said this before, but I, I want a God who judges. I want a God who judges people when they have far too much, when others around them have not enough. I want a God who judges child abuse. I want a God who judges people abusing their partners. I want a God who judges killing innocent civilians, whether that's in Ukraine 
in Yemen, in Russia or Gaza. Look at the news in recent weeks. Awful. Fathers, mothers, children being killed. I want a God who burns with fire and rage against these things. I don't want a God who just says, well, it doesn't really matter. It's okay. No. We want a God who judges. And in this, I worry that there is a, a kind of faith, an aspect of Christian faith that we sometimes have in the West. This is a kind of a, a big word. Don't worry about the word. But I, I did some research on this. It's called moral therapeutic deism. Moral, morality is about, it's about your behavior. Therapeutic is, you know, if you, you get therapy, it's kind of, you know, stroking it. You know, you're okay. And deism is this idea of a God who creates the world and then steps back from it. And I did some research on this. That this they had kind of five points for a lot of Christians or people who call themselves Christians. This is the reality. God created the world and he watches over it. He wants people to be good and nice. And that's what most religions say. Okay. The central aim of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. God doesn't need to be very involved in your life unless there's a problem. And most fundamentally, he's not judgmental. He's not going to judge. And finally, good people go to heaven when they die. And that is quite often, you'll kind of hear a message being spoken from pulpits or whatever it is around the world that effectively is around like this. Brothers and sisters, this is not the God of Scripture, is it? This is not the God of Scripture. This is a false God. There's nothing there that you can't hear being said, maybe on children in need or something. You know, be nice to each other. That's kind of it. There's nothing distinctive about being a Christian compared to being an atheist or a Muslim or anything else. The God of the Bible is a lot more interesting than that much more interesting than this. He takes sin seriously. And he takes sin seriously because sin destroys lives. Sin destroys relationships, not only between us and God, but each other and our planet and our community. When people exploit one another, like they did in Amos's time, when they, there is sexual abuse or sexual sin, and you get drunk in my temple. Amos is saying, as we go through this book, you are destroying this life that you're meant to be living. You're, you're meant to be a light to the nations, but you are, you're destroying this through your sin. And this has serious consequences. This God burns with holy fire. There should be a sense, brothers and sisters, when we come before God, a sense of awe, and of reverence. It is a serious thing to be in the presence of God. Remember like Aslan, the story of Aslan and Lucy says, you know, is he dangerous? And I say, yes, he's dangerous, but he's good. And I, I worry sometimes in the Western world that we, we kind of downplay this aspect. We make God less than who he is. Do some Christians distort this and become judgmental Pharisees? And hypocritical, of course they do. Of course they do. That's not in doubt. But there is a narrow way. Jesus says there is a narrow way. And there are few who find it. Let's not go on one side or the other of this. Let's hold on to both these truths together. 
that God's love is inseparable from his judgment. As we mature in our faith, I think we learn this is true. So as we approach this book of Amos, we could say, oh no, it's got loads of judgment. We don't want to hear that. Or perhaps we need to hear some hard truths in our own lives, okay? Especially in the Western church where we are. A lot of the time we have comfort, wealth. We're too flipping nice sometimes as Christians. You know what? We're too flipping nice and we want a nice God. And it's exhausting being around nice people. (laughs) If you know what I mean. Jesus was not nice. He was loving, but he was fierce. And asked people to be convicted of the sin in their lives. And brothers and sisters from around the world, maybe you come from a country where Christians are persecuted. I know we have a lot of people who have sought asylum within this congregation. And maybe you have something to teach us Western Westerners about that reality today that Jesus asks us to take up your cross and follow you. And I know some of your stories and the, the trauma that you've been through and the cost of discipleship. This is something that the Salvation Army traditionally has, or at least in the beginning, emphasised. Speaking against this kind of nice sense, William Booth said the chief danger that confronts the coming century will be a religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without generation, regeneration. This song that we're going to sing at the end of our service today speaks of a God of burning, cleansing flame. Send a fire, see us on your altar lay. We give our lives to you today. Let this God shake us out of our complacency and seek him again on his holy mountain. So as we wrap up today, as we travel through this book in the coming weeks, Let us keep this in mind. God's judgment is just and it is good. It is terrible and it refines like fire. When you put a piece of metal in a fire, it it kind of gets rid of all of those impurities. And that's a good thing. But let's also remember that his judgment is never understood apart from his grace. This is a book of judgment. But right at the end, and Mark's got this bit, so I'm looking forward to Mark speaking in a couple of weeks The book ends with this message of hope. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities that inhabit them. God's judgment is never just leaves us in a place of of sorrow and, and, but there's always an opportunity for redemption. Grace always has the last word because brothers and sisters, the final reality is that God's ultimate judgment upon the world is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. And God takes the sin of the world and he crucifies it on the cross. He raises us up to new life. Amen. So this is not an excuse for complacency, but the truth of scripture. So on Monday morning, tomorrow morning, when you wake up, what does this have to say to you? Firstly, remember God will use you if you acknowledge your need for him. Even if you don't think he can use you powerfully, he can. And do not be complacent in your journey of discipleship. Take repentance seriously and seek a powerful move of God in this generation, in this 
generation when the church is in decline, pray for this church. 